0: Welcome to Longitude Soundbites, where we bring innovative insights from around the world directly to you. Hi, I'm Louis Noel. I will be your host today. We are exploring the approaches of individuals to contemplation, experimentation, and decision making in scientific and creative fields. For this episode, I had an opportunity to speak with Vivas Kumar. Vivas is a business leader and engineer with executive and commercial experience across the electric vehicle and lithium-ion battery industries. He is the CEO and co-founder of MitraChem, a company primarily focused on shifting the Western electric vehicle and energy storage industries batteries towards better, safer, cheaper iron-based battery cathodes. Previously, Vivas was a senior manager in Tesla's battery team where he was the lead commercial negotiator for multi-year contracts, representing billions of dollars of spending along the battery materials supply chain. Viva studied electrical and computer engineering as an undergraduate at Rice University, my alma mater, and earned an MBA from Stanford later on. I was curious about how the engineering mindset differs from the MBA mindset. So we started our conversation with that before diving into his approach to decision making. Enjoy listening.
1: I learned very different skills in both schools. So in engineering, the classes were, the first half of engineering school was very focused on problem, like problem sets, and learning a mountain of equations. And then the second half of engineering school was the practical applicability of everything that you learn in the first half. I just had a lot more fun in the second half of the first half of engineering school because it was team-based project work where you're actually building a real product they could bring out to the world. Um, what I realized, though, after starting my professional career is The skills that I learned in engineering school can only get me so far in terms of becoming a business executive that it teaches you a tremendous problem-solving mindset, but there's still some important parts of the business world that were lacking from the experience that I had. So learning about finance, learning about marketing, um, learning about uh, business strategy, like these were all skills that I thought would be very important to turbocharge my own personal development. So that's the reason why I chose to go to Stanford Business School. Now, when I went to Stanford Business School, my prerogative was simple. It was to learn topics and take classes that were as little quantitative as possible and as much qualitative as possible. Like it, it, it's quite difficult. And I knew that the problem solving skills that I'd learned and the math skills that I'd learned were easily transferable. But taking classes on psychology, on economics, on you know concepts like finance, once again. Like it was just very, very different. And I got a very holistic education between the two. Hmm.
0: Yeah, definitely. So recently, I read a writing of Jeff Bezos in which he explained how his job as CEO of Amazon hinged on making a small number of high quality decisions. Is that true for early stage, high growth companies like mitrachem as well?
1: I completely agree with Jeff. It, it's different because this company is much bigger than mine. Mm-hmm. Right. But now, like I'm trying to reduce my time down to making the highest quality decisions that only I can make that inherently I can make either because I'm the most qualified to make them or because the rest of the company needs the decision from the highest level possible.
0: Absolutely. And as a follow-up to that, as CEO of Mitrochem, what is your process for making important decisions and how does contemplation play a role in it?
1: There's only two types of decisions that I make. One is very rapid decisions that unblock from mm-hmm. team. And the second is long-term strategy for the company that will completely fundamentally change the way in which everybody's working. For the former, it's the information that I am privy to and have access to is very important. And making sure that there's established lines of communication to get me that information as quickly as possible um, in the easiest digestible way as possible is a top priority. For the latter, that's having a very trusted and small circle of executives that I can rely on to have, you know, to to bounce ideas and engage in active problem solving.
0: Excellent. So I will move to another question that plays off of that. Gut instinct or intuition often contrasts with calculated, well-thought-out decisions, yet both can hold equal value. How do you balance the use of gut instincts with analytical data in your decision-making process? And could you share an example?
1: Even starting MitroChem was very much a gut decision right? Like it is a huge leap of faith that you're taking to work with co-founders on starting what is a rocky and volatile journey when there are plenty of much safer jobs that you can go to. Now, the strategy that we built around what MitraChem is going to do and why was a very methodical process involving lots of study of market data. So already you see the intersectionality between the two types of thinking just in the way that the founding of MitraChem happened. Right? So- One is emotional looking at market data what is very emotional which is am i willing to commit my entire life to doing this
0: definitely you mentioned earlier about bouncing decisions off of other executives or um, perhaps partners um, venture capital firms are working with um so inspiration is a guiding force to find answer to some questions but when do you look for inspiration versus deriving your own conclusions
1: um so looking for inspiration is something that I do a lot. And the way in which I look for inspiration is, let's let's talk about my decision-making ability. I look to CEOs of companies that are further along the company building process or have truly reached breakout status and try to learn as much as I can from the way that they have done business to inform my own thinking for how I should be doing business as well. Mm-hmm. Talk about Bezos. Like Bezos is a really good example. He says a lot of good things from his 27 years of having led Amazon, of like boiling down all of that knowledge into three or four crisp sentences. Like, for example, your job as CEO is to make a very small number of high quality decisions. He can know that because he's got decades of experience seeing what actually matters versus versus what doesn't. This is the other part about being a CEO that like I never understood until I took the job. A lot of it is just determining what what actually matters for you to decide versus what you should be delegating to others and empowering them to do so.
0: It reminds me, we, one of the famous quotes we used in figuring out the inspiration for the series was Pablo Picasso. when he said, it took me four years to paint like Raphael, but a lifetime to paint like a child. Um, Yeah.
1: And the wonderful thing about being a CEO in Silicon Valley is other CEOs are actually very helpful. If, if I reach out to somebody whose company three, four years ahead of mine, and I'm, facing a problem that I believe that they've faced, they're generally willing to reciprocate and tell me how I should think through it.
0: Moving on, when some people get stuck searching for an answer or new inspiration, they turn to rituals like taking a walk, listening to music or doing something creative to clear their head. Do you do anything similar when you feel stuck during project development or executive decision-making?
1: I exercise. I exercise every single day. It is the biggest unlock on my mental health and on my productivity. I strongly recommend everybody does it
0: very uh, good along those lines. Uh, do you ever experience any difficulty putting your ideas into words? And is there like a structured or creative process you follow to break the writer's block?
1: Yes, actually, ironically, writing is how I get my ideas down on paper, writing like very long emails that are like memos that I send out to my team. If I can structure it really well, then that's how I get over my inability to communicate sometimes As the number of people in the company grows, the value of each individual communication that's company-wide grows exponentially. And so, making sure that you have exactly the right words to balance what the company needs to hear and the tone that needs to be set, I will spend hours and hours thinking through every single question that could come up in an all hands email.
0: And I read that you delivered keynote speeches in multiple languages around the world. Could you share your process for contemplating ideas and preparing talking points that resonate with diverse audiences?
1: One of the nice things about climate change, which is the industry in which I'm working, is it is a human problem that transcends any language, any race, any ethnicity. Hmm. And so always bringing what I'm doing in context of the larger societal generational problem that we're building helps establish rapport from the very beginning.
0: You spent time as the global lead negotiator for Tesla's battery supply chain. And uh, particularly in your dealings in South Asia, how did silence function as a tool from both a psychological and decision-making standpoint in negotiations?
1: You said silence? Correct. Okay, so interesting. Actually, the way that I think about, you use the word silence, I think about time. And having Hmm. control over time and control over when to respond and lengthening the time for when to respond in negotiations brings you a lot more leverage. Interesting. Ultimately, so, so he who has the least time in a negotiation is most apt to lose because Definitely. they are rushed bad decision.
0: Is there any difference between electronic communication in negotiation versus in person?
1: The reality is when you're negotiating for large sums of money or contracts involving large sums, you always have to do it in person. Yeah. Like there's, there's truly no other way around it.
0: Mm -hmm. Make sense. Are there any unanswered questions you are fascinated with that you find yourself thinking about occasionally?
1: Unanswered questions. Every single difficult question I ask is all related to the people that I work with specifically at any given moment. Do I have the right people in the right places doing the right jobs with the right skills And it's a really difficult question because when you're a startup, the context is evolving so quickly. Every six months, this company is different. Right. And when the company is different every six months, if people cannot grow with the changing needs of the company, or there's a skills mismatch, there will automatically be some kind of dissatisfaction that pops up in the company. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I think that's the, you know, the age old trial of hiring people as well for certain positions and um, just growing a business. The, the objectives change constantly. And, that uh, it's really hard because as CEO, you have to, you know, look out in the future and make decisions according to what you think is best at that time.
1: Let me revise something that you said. It's that at any point in time, the skills needed to further de-risk the business are what are changing.
0: Okay. Revision accepted. (laughs) I'll take it from you. Um,
1: And and, and by the way, that's not to say that you're wrong. It's just one of these things where once again, it's like, like there's certain things that Bezos knows because he's done it for so many years, mm -hmm. Right. And it's like, in my now three years of having been a CEO, I've also just learned how to reframe and recontextualize the exact problems that I'm trying to solve. It's not like somebody's a good person or a bad person. It's just that they may not have the skills that I need at the time that I need those skills to be implemented in the company to continue the trajectory of growth that we're on.
0: That leads me to a question I'd written up about um, thinking in first principles. How do you use first principles in in approaching decision-making?
1: So I really like this concept of first principles because when I worked at Tesla, Elon was all about first principles thinking as the way in which we got things done. Essentially, what the idea of first principles thinking is, it's very straightforward. Remove every single preconception that you have and go to the scientific basis for your assumptions. And then deconstruct the problem and reconstruct the solution based solely on the known laws of physics okay now obviously we were a highly technical company so that's why i'm talking so much about like physics right but this is no different even for business problems right like let's take how do you maximize the profit of a company start from the very beginning what is profit profit is revenue minus cost what are your revenue drivers how can you increase them what are your costs how can you decrease them right so Mm -hmm. It helps to remove some kind of decision paralysis and analysis paralysis when you can recontextualize problems in that
0: way. Yeah. You're exactly right. And that was a really good walkthrough Yep. All right. My last question deals with managing trade-offs in decision making and, and how to think through them. You know, when when you're determining a, a solution for a problem, it's easy when it's a known problem. And It's like example for Mitrochem and designing a a battery architecture for a particular application. Very easy. But when you are charting your future into a potentially unknown and having to deal with unknown factors, how do you balance trade-offs in your decision-making to potentially have a more stable outcome or higher likelihood of success?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The unknown problems are the real killers of any business. Things that you don't know are things that you can't solve for, and unfortunately by the time you know that it's a problem, it sometimes becomes too late. So, the question here is not necessarily how do you solve unknown problems, it's how do you figure them out very quickly, and the only way to do that is just be relentless in questioning. And this just goes back to first principles thinking, like, you reveal problems that you did not know existed before, if you just ask a lot of questions. I agree. The problem is, humans are psychologically biased, after they turn 15, there's a marked drop-off in the number of questions that they ask, which obviously, you know, it puts them in compromising situations.
0: Wait, let's touch on that real quick. You said after they turn 15, there is a marketable um, drop-off in the number of questions they ask.
1: There's a noticeable drop-off in the number of questions that they ask.
0: Huh. Why do you think that is?
1: It's because society tells them to not ask questions anymore.
0: Hmm. Okay. What, what's the solution to that?
1: The solution that's exactly, it Um, it is that you have to recognize that you are programmed to not ask questions mm -hmm. and remove that psychological barrier for yourself.
0: Excellent. That's a first principle solution. We hope you enjoyed our episode. What stood out for me from this conversation was learning how Vivas applies a structured engineering mindset to business development. I could especially see this in how he was able to rapidly articulate complex answers in an easy-to-understand way while sparing few details.
1: To view the episode transcript, please visit longitude.site. If you're a college student interested in leading a conversation like this, visit our website longitude.site to submit an interest form or to write to us at podcast at Join us next time for more unique insights on longitude sound bites.